0: Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down remotely and uh, chatting with me about this fantastic, really exciting movie that came out, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. First of all, did you guys expect that it would be such a hit? How is it that the film has been out for a little over a week or two? What can you say about having the film be out in the world and having a chance for your friends and family and fans to see your work? Oh, it's terrific. It's actually been less than a week, I think, that it's been open. Um, And I guess it's doing well financially.
1: You know, we we often, we work on a lot of movies, and uh, we can almost always tell whether we like the movie or don't like the movie. I don't think we can ever know how much money it's going to make, anything of that sort. But this is one that I think even in the roughest form, we looked at it and said, wow, this is going to be a lot of fun to work on, and it's going to be a good movie that we like.
2: Yeah, and I would say just... Right from the beginning, uh, I guess, having worked with Chris and Phil uh, and Bob Fisher previously. Uh, Bob Fisher's the picture editor and Sony Pictures Animation in general. Um, but knowing Chris and Phil and their creativity and then just the general subject matter, it was like, oh, this is probably going to be something that's going to be a lot of fun.
0: So was that, was that the connection? Was it through through Chris and Phil that you guys had previously worked together? How did the project land in uh, your lap?
2: I met Chris and Phil uh, originally on Cloudy with a Chance at Meatballs, which would have been in 2009. Um, Then they produced Cloudy 2, and um, so kind of worked with them though not as directly. And then they did also 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, and then the Lego movie, which I helped out on in the end. Mm-hmm. And Kurt jumped in with us on 22 Jump Street. Right. And uh, so we, we have a bit of a... Um, you know, a second hand um, going with Chris and Phil, who are the producers of this. And uh, again, I would say they are definitely a creative force. Yeah. Um, <laughs> strongly on this picture, um, bears their mark quite a bit, as well as the uh, the three directors as well.
0: Yeah. Well, it was until after uh, the film was over and the credits were rolling, and my wife was like, "Wait a second, those those are the Lego guys." I'm like, "Yeah." She's like, "We we love the Lego films. The, the humor is so sharp and so." The timing is so just perfect. And I feel like uh, there must have been a huge influence on just the pacing and everything because uh, everything is so seamless. It seems so effortless. And I can't imagine how much how many conversations, how much time, how much work you guys had spent just orchestrating and arranging the the sound. So how early on did you guys get involved and what was kind of their pitch to you? Like what was the road ahead?
2: circling back just to to pick up on what you said about, um, the comedy and the sharpness and whatnot. Um, one of the directors, Rodney Rothman, he goes back to being a writer. I think he was the head writer for David Letterman. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not mistaken. Uh, Chris and Phil are comedy writers, I think at their core. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, and, and then all, all of them, all five, uh, Bob Prusichetti and, and Peter Ramsey with them, they're all constantly writing. So that translated into the recording of dialogue and the re-recording of dialogue and the re-re-recording and on and on and on, just constantly searching for you know, just one more uh, layer or one more little performance shift or anything they could do to constantly... Um, up the ante on that and or the timing of it, the the choice of, you know, this word or that very painstakingly uh, crafted on their part. Um, mm-hmm. That translates to every element. I would say getting on to the project, it was the Sony Pictures Animation picture. So uh, we were on uh, Hotel Transylvania 3 already. Um, so we were sort of, hanging around, uh, if you will. Um, Wait, I was and... working
1: hard through that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and so that, and this picture, I, I think my original, the first time I ever heard of it, it was, um, you know, maybe three years back when they were first getting going and it was, I worked on a quick little teaser thing for CinemaCon or something, you know, some trade show and uh, met Bob Persichetti and knew Bob Fisher from uh, the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs pictures. Um, so just then he was the picture editor. And, and he's, I think, a creative person. Like he's a sixth man for these five guys, if you will. Um, he's sort of the sixth man as far as getting the picture together. He's, you know, very key um, you know, for Chris and Phil as far as their Uh, creative input goes and seeing things through to uh, from their imagination and onto the screen. So it was, I I heard about it early on, but I would say it was February when it all sort of kind of hit. I think they were, you know, had developed a schedule, had a release date. um, Things were moving and uh, Chris and Phil were um, fully engaged on, on as far as, being involved with the picture, and uh, that's when they needed to make some decisions about how they were going to finish it. Okay. So, especially with their uh, they're currently finishing Lego Two, so that's you know they're they're very busy guys, and so just uh, I think it was them trying to find um, a way to get it done with people they didn't have to explain a lot of stuff. to.
0: <laughs> that's well put. Um, so I mean, visually, this film is just uh, there, I haven't quite seen anything like it in a long time or ever maybe. I really I saw it in 2D, which to me I was imagining seeing a 3D version of this film must be incredible. But I did hear it in Atmos and I will say that you guys did not leave anything behind. I mean, it, there are so many opportunities in this film because visually it's so strong and there's so much movement and there's such a sense of environment and space and perspective that you guys seem like they're at carte blanche. And, and so maybe can you help describe how the visual implied, obviously your reaction to how you treated sound and, and how immersive audio played in, into, uh, that experience?
1: Yeah. Well, it's always great to see, uh, something on the picture that lead, allows us to put some interesting sounds in, um, this, this is an opportunity on this movie, like from frame one. <laughs> to go crazy and it's, it, you know, it's one of the most fun movies uh, I've worked on. Um, and, and part of our personal fun on doing it, I think is, is all the great little things we could do that, uh, you know, your, your normal uh, uh, dialogue driven comedy, you know, you can't go crazy with, you have to, you have to be, you have to make the movie that they're making. And this is a movie that was like, wow, we could <laughs> Mm-hmm. Go, go nuts and you know there there was one level where we're we're trying to find a lot of stuff to put in and then another level where we're trying to find a lot of stuff to take out so that we have room for the things that that are the most important and it's it's just it's a very big of a push pull all the way through um because you don't want to miss anything but then you don't want to you know obliterate uh the audience's ears with with too much and uh that's that's one big part of the challenge. But it's great to have those visuals. When we first saw it, there was I don't know what what do you think, Jeff, ten percent uh of those shots were to the point where we could tell what they were?
2: Yeah, yeah. And even then uh at times you would you would look at something and, and think you understood visually what was happening and then I, I think back now to things that I thought we knew what how it would look. And I and I think about what's on the screen now, and it, it just it's flabbergasting at times to to think about. The, I think the color palette. Uh, number one, um, I'm colorblind, so I have no idea what all of you are seeing. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm I I I lack um, red. Uh, I'm red deficient, so I don't see purple. But um, it's just you know stunning to look at, and the what they did and visually um, the the treats that, you know, we would stop on frames as we were getting towards the end of the mix. You just kind of any frame you'd stop on, you'd be like, wow, look at that. It's like a, you know, um, an impressionist painting at one point. It's a comic book at another. It's, um, you know, a, a drastic misprint from a offset press, the next frame. Uh, it's, uh, you know, what they, what those guys pulled off visually is, is know, uh, Justin and Dean were just just fantastic.
1: So we were trying to match, you know, match the sound to that. You know, it was like, okay, we got a comic book. We don't know what a comic book sounds like. So what can we do? And uh, doing a, a native Atmos mix, which is what this was, gave us a, a, an extra level of, of uh, toys to play with. Yeah,
2: it, it makes a big difference um, starting in, you know, starting natively in Atmos. Um, you know, you're just immediately in that 3D space. And and that helps so much. It's such a great format because there's room, um, a little more room for things to exist. Uh, You can kind of spread things around and, and you know, if, if you need, you know, a sound to sort of happen, but there's other things going on, you know, maybe it's just slide some of this over here, slide some of that over there, and suddenly there's room for everybody. It's uh, either, you know, rather than everyone trying to come through the same, you know, one door, if you're thinking of mono, you know, and now we've got a lot more doors. So. Yeah.
0: yeah, And, and something that, that I was really curious to see, Spider-Man has a long history, not only as a movie character, but at Sony. And so do you feel that when you came into this, that there's a some type of... Sonic world that Spider-Man does live in, especially with some of those iconic sounds. Like, obviously, this is taking a spin on the character and bringing it up to modern day. But what iconic sounds carry over? What things are you recreating? Was there anyone there that was kind of giving you guidance of how things should sound in this world, or were you guys working from a blank slate?
2: Um, I would say we definitely had um, marching orders from the beginning of you know there was there wasn't a the, the, sl- the slate was truly blank okay. um, it was um, mostly just from a creative standpoint um, you know the all of those guys all five of them were interested in seeing what this movie would sound like not what any previous iteration of anything um, might sound like i th- I think an original thought of mine was and it and it played out to a degree we meet. Uh, early on, you know, Peter that we know, you know, the the mm-hmm. Peter from um, our universe, if you will, is is the first one up. So we we specifically, you know, I specifically sought out certain things that would be iconic to to that world, you know. So whether it's his web slings or, you know, putting a you know kind of winking in a certain direction, you know, with with a certain whoosh or something like that, that would sort of take you back to that, and um, I, one of the guys that uh, we hired on the project, uh, a guy named Donald Flick, had worked on Spidey One, so uh, the Sam Raimi picture for his uh, brother, Steve Flick, and so there were certain, he, he knew certain little things, and uh, so he was kind of fun to have around of like, oh yeah, you know, we definitely did this or that, and so there's a couple of those sounds specifically like this is exactly, you know, uh, related to that. That goes all the way back that direction. And then pretty much then after that, you know, we left all that behind and it was all brand new. So there's a few things specifically that um, we put in just to sort of wink at the um, previous versions. And then after that, it was kind of all bets are off.
3: Yeah. I
1: think the one thing I recall uh, that we made an effort to get in, um, There's a quote from Uncle Ben uh, in the in the opening uh, uh, montage uh, where he says, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, And that is Cliff Robertson from the first movie. Um, We found a couple of clips that we could use and got got permission to use it. So it does have that.
0: It's authentic. Nice. That's really fun. Uh, you have an incredible cast of characters, uh, voice actors. Shane is playing Miles Morales, Jake Johnson's Peter Barker, and they have Haley Steinfeld playing Gwen, and Mahershala Ali playing Uncle Aaron, and it goes on and on. At what point are they locking script? And also like the fact that maybe Spider-Man's mouth, because it is covered, they have a little more flexibility with changing lines. But like, right. how, what is it like to work on an animated film, and then especially an animated film that has so many characters like this, so, so many lead characters. It's not like it's just one character the whole way through. Uh,
1: well, for me, it was like, uh, I don't know, uh, painting with dust. Uh, <laughs> everything was, con- not, the, when was it locked? It was locked the night we wrapped. Right. Uh, and, and literally everything was open for discussion constantly. And uh, there was no mo- moment when I thought, ah, now we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, until really it's really until the print master <laughs> after the print master was completed uh, because they were just always, they were keeping that door open to change. Now the, the interesting thing to me is that, that at one point uh, we had to go backwards to uh, we, we'd made a, a number of changes over the course of the process. And there was and one of the directors wanted some of the dialogue to be uh, you know, he wanted me to go back and make sure that, that it was exactly as it had been months earlier. And it was, it was surprising to me at that point how much was untouched. Um, th- this was the uh, the death scene with uh, Uncle Aaron, which might be a spoiler. Um, but uh, Mahershala Ali, um, I think everything but one line in there was exactly what they had handed us the first, uh, the first week. So there's some things that, you know, they nailed it and, and we able to keep their hands off it. And, uh, and some stuff, we're just changing <laughs> every 20 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, Oh, you know, there's a lot of, um, of angst in, in that world of, of when you got a bunch of writers um, they all think um, maybe they've left something out that they should have put in. And they're, they're always, they're, they're so we were constantly redoing that. Um, the mouth movements. Um, I, at first, I thought, oh, this will be easy. No sync problems. <laughs> it's Spider-Man. They got a mask on all the time. Um, and uh, that actually, they don't really have the mask on that often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a couple of characters, uh, Noir and uh, and and um, uh, Spider-Ham, never have their masks off but that's about it. Everybody else is actually talking, but there's ways that we can manipulate stuff and help it. If we, they wanted to change out a reading or change out a line, we often were able to make it work. Mm. Um, yeah. So, and they were bringing, I mean, we, they were bringing those actors back in constantly and having them do for, four different readings of some different lines to replace the other 25 that they already had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, and that was part of why, you know, when you go back to why did we get this gig as opposed to anyone else? Part of it is we've had a history with those guys and they trust us to not get, uh, flustered with their, uh, with their creative process. And it, cause it is, uh, challenging sometimes, but, you know, we know how they work and we know that they're going to be doing that. And, um, uh, Gave up on the on that feeling of I've finished that sequence,
3: mm.
1: and uh, just just didn't think that way until we were done done, and uh, I think that helped us uh, survive uh, the the craziness of that. Yeah, it's great.
2: Yeah, it's it's all about managing expectations with them because if you're if you have an expectation that uh, oh I've I'm done with this so that means it's done and then you're just setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment you know it's just guaranteed so you sort of have to like let go of any previous notions you you might have of like okay i've i've done this we've done that we've played it back we've gone around the horn on it a couple of times this feels this feels complete and done if you start to think that way then then you know Disappointments coming for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I think their creative attitude is, "Wow, that we got it perfect. Now let's see how we can make it better." Yeah, um, and that they, they never let go of that idea, you know, which is uh, it, it's challenging, but it's invigorating as well.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, it, it's yeah, and it isn't just oh, let's just keep tearing it apart just because, you know, um, there's there's a method to the madness there you know they're it's about trying to make it better in in many cases um you know for us it's not we're not you know i didn't see it um ever as oh we're done because there's nothing left to add uh and in a lot of cases it's there's nothing left to remove you know we've stripped it down to the 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 core elements that have to be there and that's what makes the strongest presentation sometimes the core elements might be 1,000 elements, you know, it might be, you can't live without, you know, um, this incredibly complex track, and then there's other times where it's, you know, some dialogue tracks, room tone and movement, you know, that's, that's it, few Foley footsteps, you know, or something, it's, so, and, and, or the track goes to absolute zero as well, (laughs) so there's, you know, several places where it goes, you know, all the way dead silent, which is always great because you know it gives everybody a little reset Mm,
0: that's great just talking about the fact that the dynamics in this film and what you and how it was approached in Atmos it was very immersive to me it was you know it's it's an hour and 17 minutes it's not it's not like a a short kids film 60 you know 70 80 minutes Uh, I, I feel like you guys really kept the dynamics to be really interesting can you talk about just how you utilize Atmos in this way? How did you use the overheads? How did you manage manage a lot of the the low end? There's an there's some incredible scenes that really stand out where it's just like you just hold on and you get pulled in into the moment.
2: Um, I'll, I'll jump in on that real quick. Um, and mm-hmm. Kurt, I'm I'm sure you're going to have stuff to add to it. But right, um, something to that we all again, it kind of goes back to just working with these guys. Is they're. Um, quite often asking, are we, you know, uh, is is the audience going to be comfortable listening to this? Mm-hmm. Because we can't wear them out. And there's plenty of, you know, if, if we just sort of were left to, um, if we didn't constantly have that in our minds of like, is this getting too loud? Is this too sharp? Is this... To you know, grinding, um, what, whatever, uh, we have to, we would stop and, and sort of reset, recal, back up, um, lower things, whatever it is, um, because they want people to be shocked where they need to be shocked and they need it to be, they want it to be loud if it needs to be loud, but they don't want anything to be loud just because. Mm-hmm. So it will work. There's a constant vigilance that takes place on the stage um, with these guys of like, hmm, that feels a little spicy. Let's, you know, let's look at that. Uh, that. That's a little sharp right there. You know, playing back a scene, a line, a whole reel, the whole movie, whatever it is, there's a, a constant attention to comfort. Um, so, and or presentation, making people um, feel comfortable and understanding what's going on. So that that's baked in right from the beginning. Also, my experience with them um, in the past with just in general, we, st- we started cutting the sound effects and or designing sounds specifically with that in mind, like knowing that that's where we were headed and that we would always be needing to, to pay attention to that. We would make decisions on what sound to use um, based on how is that going to play, so in impressive yes but loud uh just for the sake of loud or sharp because that's kind of fun you know big bright sound or whatever it's you know no that's not going to work also like the whole crew um you know i would i would tell you know the sound effects editors like well leave the dialogue and music on when you're cutting because that's not going anywhere you know like that's that will be there <laughs> no matter what so work around it uh, if if you have to um and or find a sound that's impressive without being loud, you know, and that, that a lot of times means taking care of the low end, uh, you know, low frequencies can be very handy for being impressive without being, um, you know, painful to the ears, you know, there you can sort of add energy without, um, you know, wear and tear on the eardrums. So, and also that leaves room for the dialogue. Um, So that's kind of, first and foremost, and then from the um, then moving forward from there, finding sounds that deliver the energy or the feel that you want without being too loud or too harsh or anything like that.
0: And then into the
2: mix, and uh, Tony uh, Lamberti, who was the effects mixer, um, very much uh, right from the get-go, we pre-dubbed, you know, in Atmos. Uh, we did the the temp, even the temp mixes, we were in 7.1, um from the, right from the beginning, and we just started there and then just added the, the tops, um, you know, uh, as we went forward into the, the pre-mixing process. But um, that, always just having that in mind, we knew that's where we were headed, so we just, you know, we're designing with that in mind. So creating that space around things or moving things around, um, constantly expanding things off the, off the screen, whether it was with panning or reverb, uh, whatnot was to create that. Like you say that, that sort of immersive feel, but, uh, importantly to feel correct, feel right and feel comfortable for the audience. It can be loud, but it, it just, there was, I think a lot of care taken, uh, from that regard, um, to make sure it was comfortable and appropriate as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That was kind of our mantra through the whole thing. Um, this feels watching it like it's a really loud movie. Um, but it, it isn't as loud as it feels. And that was kind of part of the goal too, um, I think to to give give energy but not not kill people. Um, and in a lot of it is also in the balancing of music and, and, and effects and dialogue uh, all the way through the mix, uh, we're, yeah, we're always kind of managing who, which of those layers uh, owns the low frequency and which of the layers owns the mids in this, you know, on these 10 frames. And then the next 10 frames is a different decision. So it's, it's very, uh, a lot of thought goes into this and a lot of, um, a lot of sacrifice of things where the music had to be sacrificed for this beat, uh, you know, so that we could hear the, whatever, the gunshot of the, you know, the web swim thwick. Uh, and, and in other places, the music won that moment, and, and you know some door close had to be quieter. Uh, so it was always that uh, that that battle. I wouldn't say battle; it's always just like a decision-making <laughs> process. Yeah, yeah, it's creative. And as Jeff said, the, the, our our leaders uh, uh, had a, have a good, a really good grasp of what that all means, and they understand that there's a difference. Um, between what what the low frequencies do and the mids and what, what part of the, the sound range works. And so we, it was easy to discuss that with them, mm. uh, which is not always the case.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, you guys are saying you started maybe, you know, early in this year, around February or so. So knowing your timeline, knowing that you have a looming release date, do you have the time to go out and re- re- record sounds? Did you need to? Are there specific things that are pulled f- from your own libraries, like where do you start start sourcing material when you know that that picture is going to be changing, and then you have to be flexible. So, where did you pull your a lot of your material from then?
2: Um, I would say we pull material from just uh, the entire world, anything we can get our hands on. Um, so there's you know previous recordings uh, of you know you know library if you library if you will you know there's. Sony has a big library. Um, All of us that worked on the picture have collected up a lot of sounds um, over the years. So, there's a lot of that gets used right up front, you know, in the temp mix process and, you know, getting things sort of starting to dial it in. But uh, we also had a tremendous partner with us, a guy named uh, John Pospisil. Uh, He goes, you know, he's sort of known in the industry as John P or just the letter P um known him since the you know, I don't know, since I moved to Los Angeles ninety one, I guess is when I would have met him. Kurt has known him uh, even longer. Um mm-hmm. so he's the creative force behind you know, he, he got an Academy Award for Robocop with Steve Flick back in what was that, 1990?
1: or exactly another century, yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, in the previous century. Anyways, John P uh, knows what's going on, and uh, this, you know, he's worked on a lot of pictures. We've worked on a lot of pictures together. So he, as a sound designer, um, in in the truest sense of just literally whipping things out of nothing, um, probably, you know, with three or four hundred. Pro Tools sessions from him um, of things, you know, from scratch. You know, just he, him looking at picture and making sounds for it. A lot of that I don't even direct him or he and I will have conversations not every day. It's like sometimes it's every day, but, you know, sometimes it's, you know, days and days will go by. But things just keep showing up, um, you know, ideas he had or, or whatnot. And we don't always use his sounds Like he he makes a sound for this thing, but it's like, Oh yeah, I don't know. That doesn't really work there, you know, or that we kind of have that covered in a different direction, but man, that really works great over here on something, you know, that has nothing to do with that. So it's, um, it was a lot of fun. He, he specifically seemed rather, um, I mean he's worked on a lot of pictures and he's seen it all come and go, uh, and, um, in Hollywood and, he was unbelievably enthusiastic about this picture. Um, just because, I mean, once you see it, the you know, once and as the visuals rolled in, uh, it just kept getting becoming more and more fun to um, to create little bits for it. So, um, I would say that was uh, he was a big part of, of that. Everybody was constantly bringing their their game to it, and there were fun there was a lot more use of synthesis than I am normally used to doing and or normally comfortable with. And for whatever reason, I'm always sort of like, it feels like, Oh, we're just going to synthesize a sound that's, you know, we're, we're twisting some knobs, you know, I want to, you know, that's, I don't know if it feels like cheating or not or whatever, but then, you know, the, the painstaking process of some of these sounds that got synthesized, um, I would say, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with how how we got sure. to where we, where we got. Um, there was some interesting tools that got used, uh, different software, uh, bits of software or, uh, there, you know, my, my son who's, I guess the youngest member of our team, um, who was a Foley supervisor, um, for the picture also does a lot of EDM music production. So he has a, um, a particular um, bit of software for making sounds that are very aggressive and rude, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was able to, um, conjure up a few interesting bits that uh, fa- figure in prominently in a couple of the glitch moments and whatnot that are like, okay, you know, that's, uh, I don't know how we would have ever got that sound, mm-hmm. you know, or the randomness and aggressiveness yet able to, you know, um, you know, keep 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 it in the 5K and below range, uh, so as to not you know rip your ears off. But uh, so it was it was kind of everything, and we did a number of recording sessions where we would specifically gather up a prop or certain instruments or or what have you to to record, and or where we have record you know. The, if you walked into any of our editing rooms, you'd see a lot of microphones laying around um and recorders uh, you know uh, Kurt had his recorder at the ready at all times because you never knew when they when an actor would walk into the room and they'd go, "Oh hey, can we just record this really quick?" uh we yeah. have them swing by so we could grab this line It's like, "Oh sure, why not um so we were constantly recording uh things uh, whether it was a hey let's." go buy a couple of drones and record the blades on them because that might be fun for part of Doc Ock or something. Uh, or, oh, I found this piece, yeah. piece of plastic pipe laying around. Let's uh, shove some microphones in it and, uh, you, know, re- you know, manipulate that for a little bit and see if that turns into something. That was constantly happening. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Mike Reagan, who worked on the picture for of weeks uh, as a very talented composer and musician, we gathered up his, you know, his, ba- his you know, big double bass, cello, viola, hammer dulcimer, and a variety of stringed instruments, and just went to town on that for a few hours one night, uh, recording bits that, uh, you know, looking for bits of sound that could become part of uh, Spidey Sense and and whatnot. So there was. I would say constantly, um, things being recorded, even right up to the end. Literally, yeah. in the in the in the waning days, the the last few days of uh, late nights, the microphones never get put away.
1: Yeah, I, I seem to remember a, a, a espresso machine of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> we were; uh, it had some little spinny motor in it that sounded cool. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's constantly. It's every everything from the. The depths of the library to you know what have you got stuck on the bottom of your shoe right now? Yeah, um,
0: yeah. So you mentioned Foley, which to me seems it's always important. It's never not important, but in an animated film. Foley to me seems like the the foundation of really grounding the characters in the world. The weight of the characters, the speed. What can you say about Foley for this film? Because with so many characters, how do you describe Foley on a film like this and, and on a project that has kind of a sliding picture? It's never always going to be landing in the same spot.
2: Um, yeah, well, the from the working backwards, the the picture constantly changing um, was just a challenge from a sync perspective is just constantly needing to um make adjustments um that that was this film you know pretty much whatever was on the stage we would be if we were mixing on reel two well we you know those of us on the stage are fiddling with the sink and uh whatnot but the um all the other reels somebody else has, you know, has open and they're fiddling with, you know, oh, we got a new shot here, a new shot here, constantly tweaking and, and um, whatnot to keep things sharp and clean and, and in sync with the picture. Um, from the Foley perspective, uh, there's an interesting resource. Um, so Gary Hecker would be the great right. uh, Foley walker. And um, he's worked on all the Spider-Man movies. <laughs> Uh, and he's a, you know, uh, kind of, you know, he's got some nicknames, Gary the Wrecker Hecker. Uh, he's, he's bi- he knows how to make big, bold uh, sounds. Um, he treats the Foley stage, and he and Randy, uh, Randy as the Foley mixer, t- who to me is like the, a very key resource, the, the walkers performing things, but Randy, uh, his taste and his ability to sort of, you know, uh, gather, if you will, um, you know, he's kind of like a um, engineer, producer on a, on a record, right, you know, c- constantly carving, and, you know, because it's like a recording studio situation, he's, his ears, his, you know, how much high-end, how much, you know, whatnot, so I think I think there's a constant push and pull with he and Gary, uh, you know, Gary wants big, bold, you know, constantly bigger and bolder, and and Randy's helping to, you know, um find a place for, for all of that energy to, to make it into the picture. So I think, you know from a, a team perspective they um it's um it's a good match. They've um they uh haven't been working haven't worked together uh for I don't know it's only been a few years that they were um, working together, Randy, but both of them have been at it forever. So the combination of the two and their experience is very powerful. Um, I would say grounding these characters was something that, um, you know, it was an important note right from the beginning was it sort of had to feel real even though it's incredibly unreal and fantastic, everything that's taking place, the idea that this is just happening and, you know, it's just, there's an everyday nonchalance to certain elements or just, you know, things just have to happen like they would, uh, in their universe. Um, was, you know, an important uh, thing to come through that would even come through in dialogue. Um, you know, uh, the mixing of it and or some of the recordings, I think, um, you know, as Mahershala Ali is, is, you know, lying on the ground in the alley, I asked them, I said, it sounds like he's laying down while he's saying some of these lines. And they were like, yeah, yeah, he was laying down. Cause mm. it has that sort of that feel to it. But, um, you know, Michael in the mixing, Michael Semanic, um, you know, Phil would say, Oh, can we just make that feel more, thrown away like just like the boom mic wasn't didn't quite make it over there in time you know or was they were just a little off mic or trying to give it rather than just a bunch of lines that are all super clear and clean trying to give it constantly a uh, feeling of perspective or on off mic you know head turns all of that sort of stuff i mean kurt you could probably you know jump in yeah. on that with you know the pre-dubbing process and what you guys been through on that
1: yeah. Um, I mean, spatializing it, which by which I mean, you know, sort of finding the right reverb uh, space for all those voices, because they are recorded in a studio. Most of them are pretty clean. Um, most of them are actually too on mic. And so there's a lot of EQ work uh, to, to thin it out a little bit. So it doesn't sound like they have their nose pressed against the pop screen. Um, and uh yeah, and, and, and just dirtying it up a little bit and letting it be less perfect uh, or trying to make it be less perfect because um, it's, it's, it, it's absolutely impossible for the production mixers or the, 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 the recording mixer on those things to know what, where everybody's going to be and how they're going to be. So they, they tend to get a really nice, clean, good recording and then uh, we have to mess it up because um, we're trying to put it into that world. Um, another thing that we—I mean, this is—we you know, come into this thing uh, a, a year and a half or two years into their production um, cycle, and they've already done an enormous amount of recording, and so it's tough to have a lot of influence on what they've done, and, and uh, or come in and, and change what they're doing to make it to make it different. Um, one of their methodologies was to just record the dialogue and uh not do movement and breath and things in between uh in between that very much and then at the end of a session they'd have the actor record a bunch of breaths and and efforts and such Uh, and those sort of got put into a bin somewhere and um, not until i came in did we start to dig around in that bin and try to create again talk about grounding, it's, it's like even, just breaths and efforts tend to be kind of the vocal foley of, of what a movie needs. And, uh, and so there was a lot of work put into just filling in those spaces in between things and keeping the character feeling like they're alive. Um, uh, in a couple of cases, uh, the actors weren't uh, available and we ended up with a couple of voice-alikes uh, to do a couple of those things. Um, but for the most part, it is every, it is the cast members doing it, but not, they didn't do it to picture. They didn't record it to match the movement. So all that had to be done post. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of fun to do because once you do it, suddenly they become a little more alive as opposed to just the cartoon character.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, just looking at the, you know, you have Nicolas Cage, Leif Shriver, John Mulaney, like these are well-experienced actors. That's the one thing I think people uh, who think about getting into voice acting, it's not just about having the voice and understanding the delivery. Like there really is... An aspect of acting where that performance does translate. So, oh yeah, how do you carry consistency from session to session with the actors? Do you, are you using the same microphones? How much um, continuity, you know, has to be in place in order to make your guys' jobs a little more sane? I guess.
1: Well, there's an attempt, and it's it's usually successful, and sometimes there's there's uh, it, does, it misses. But they they uh, they work from a spec sheet. They if they if we're recording. I mean, there were like two studios at Sony they primarily used with like maybe 80% of what got recorded was recorded in one of those two uh, rooms, and and they had uh, you know the the particular mics are spec'd out on the uh, on the recording sessions, so they're going to use this mic close and then another mic a little further away, and some distances kind of marked in on the sheet as to where how they're supposed to lay it out. And that spec sheet goes out to any other recording studios that they're working in. Right. And uh, if they don't own, you know, if they're, very often there's, we've got an actor who's in London or something, and uh, they we may need to get a get something from them. Well, they'll bring them into a studio in London and hook up with Skype or ISDN or something. Um, but we tell the, the studio what mics they need to have, and if they don't have it, they'll go rent it. Uh, so we have at least the same, uh, uh, not the same exact mic, you know, not the same physical mic, but the same microphone you know, model uh, hanging in kind of the same distance. And after that, it's, uh, the acoustics of the room are uncontrollable. Uh, we try to listen. And if, if somebody uh, has a good enough ear for it, they'll, they'll make adjustments as need be. But sometimes we do get lines that kind of don't, fit as well as we wished, And yeah. that's Ben Michael's semantics challenge to make it work. Um, the, uh, what is this? uh, the lost my track here. Um, uh, Oh, um, one of the, uh, when you talk about actors and the performances, uh, it's so incredibly important in this particular movie. Um, a great example is that uh, uh, Nick Cage was not cast or he hadn't recorded anything for the part of noir until pretty far in. I mean, we probably had done a couple of attempts. I think we'd done a couple of attempts without him. And it was a very bland character. And we were all like, eh, well, and, and he came in and suddenly that character came to life and the animation had not changed. But he is, you know, he is among those people who are actors who, who can just breathe some life into something, and it, it was pretty, it, it was really interesting to watch that that uh, the just the nuance of his performance would, would bring that guy into to become a character that we uh, were intrigued with, as opposed to just you know some assistant editor reading the lines and uh, being kind of boring. Um, so, yeah, those those performances were all worth the effort to get, you know, those those world class actors in to do. Uh, they really did bring on Mahershala Ali is just incredible. Um, Brian Tyree Henry is terrific.
3: Yeah.
1: And, uh, and uh, I mean, there's like nobody in the cast who isn't just really, really good. Yeah. So it's always fun to get that material and, and, uh, and see what it does.
2: And and then sometimes there's a, they, they decide, oh, I wish this actor would have added this one thing onto the end, but they're not available because they're shooting a television show right now. And so sometimes we find ourselves early in the morning going to a set and going to somebody's trailer and picking up a couple of lines and crossing <laughs> our fingers and hoping that that's going to be able to match in with the, you know, get dovetailed in at the end of a, of a line. So, uh, or in classic, um, Chris and Phil fashion, you know, uh, you'll get a text from them with a recording, a voice memo from an iPhone re- attached to it. And now that needs to be, find its way into the movie.
1: Huh. Oh yeah. that uh. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cell phone yeah, recording knows
2: all about that. It'll be like, I'll see his eyes bug out. Like we're doing what?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, and Jeff, yeah, did end up in somebody's dressing trailer, and uh, you know, yeah, these things have to be done, and so you make the best of it. You know, uh, we have incredible cool tools to uh, to make stuff to work. Uh, the res- restoration in a in a normal uh, live action film is all about restoration, um, and so the animated things is a lot simpler usually, but yeah, there there are occasions when it does isn't perfect.
0: Something that uh, is just well known about Marvel films is that there's always a cameo performance by Stan Lee. And this film was no exception. I feel like the scene that they built for Stan, the characters playing Miles Morales is going into the, st- into the store and he's going to buy a costume. And here's the, the Stan Lee that we all know and love. So... When did that happen? Because Stan has passed on and he's no longer with us, but you had this amazing recording. So how long ago was that recorded? And, you know, what what was it like to kind of include Stan's voice into this project?
1: Uh, well, that was done before we even began. So mm. uh, I think they knew they were going to use him uh, for that. Uh, I, I don't, you know, they obviously they didn't know uh, how long he would uh, survive this all, but um, I think that... That it was just done because it was the right, uh, they found the right little part for him. Yeah. Um, and uh, it did, that never, I don't think that ever changed uh, at all. So.
0: Okay. So, so that was something that was really, even before you guys came on, that was already recorded? Right. Wow. And uh,
1: ironically, it was one of the last things that I saw animated.
0: <laughs> oh, interesting.
1: It was pretty late before we saw, because everything else was more important, I think, just to get it
0: yeah. in the chain. Wow, incredible. So, Ace, Lastly, every film is an incredible journey. You don't know what you're getting into, and obviously, you don't really have perspective until you've been away from it for a while. And you haven't been away from it for that long, but you have been away for it now for like. I guess when did you deliver with the film coming out so recently? How close up to the wire were you guys? How many hours? Uh, yeah. What it was it three um, days before the uh, world premiere.
1: I think we were still print mastering. Okay. Yeah.
2: We were the, the, the week, the premiere was December 1st and that was Saturday. The, was that Saturday? The first and, and on Monday of that week. Yeah. So on Monday of that week, we were, we finally got to what (laughs) we lovingly refer to as pencils down. Um, and, and it wasn't Monday morning either. And, Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 texts that were flying in from various uh executives um during those last few hours were pretty entertaining because people were kind of a little little anxious you know are you are you guys going to finish but uh we did but uh, so it but it was it was long hours and 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 a lot of and pretty much every every day that was available to work we would work and and there were many versions as well There were you know constant you know, this, in order to make it in this territory, this has to be done, and in order to make it in this, you know, foreign territory, you have to have this done, so we were constantly battling that, you know, um, rather than things being done in a sort of normal serial fashion of, you know, you finish mixing, and then now we do these versions, and, you know, everything sort of happens in a particular order, uh, in a in a serial manner, uh, we ended up doing a lot of things in a parallel fashion, so... We'd have a second stage rolling, you know, uh, doing little little bits here and there, or you know, at night uh, somebody would come in and send something off to this place or that place to to keep the project moving forward. But the 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 full mix of the of the final domestic picture was about as down to the wire as,
0: <laughs> Is they as
2: nobody was comfortable with. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's part of the uh, maybe the flexibility I don't know what the, the right word is, but you're working in a native Atmos format. You know that your seven ones and your other fold downs are going to translate, you know, a lot better than I think in previous formats would allow. You probably have faith in the fact that, you know, what you're doing on stage is going to translate to that premiere. What is it like now that the film is done? Did you guys already do your home releases? Are you still tinkering with aspects of the film? Like, is there anything else that needs to be done at, at this stage?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's something called the alternate universe, uh, which is you know uh, some deleted scenes and whatnot that's sure. still in progress. But yeah. uh, but the the home theater mix was uh, last week and the week before, or uh, just this week, Monday and Tuesday, uh, we did the the Atmos home theater pass. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, last week, uh, the previous week, um, we did the, what would be the, you know, five, one and LTRT and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, crash downs, you know, working our way down into the, into the smaller formats and listening to it on a, some TV speakers at way too low a volume to see how it's translating. And, um, you know, all of, all of that. But I, I would say on Monday, um, This week, I was sitting in a very, very, very purpose-built setup that uh, Sony has for doing home theater um, mixing, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's a it's a very tweaked out, very capable space. You know, that that plays that Atmos mix to you in a very um, high resolution manner, Mm -hmm. and it was it was quite fun. I actually quite enjoyed uh, listening to it. It was. Like uh, um, listening on you know these you know JBL speakers that you know have these these new uh, new tweeter technology and whatnot. It's like very high res and the room is you know very tweaked and and uh, whatnot. And you know listening at a lower volume, you can all the details start to to float to the top. And it was uh, actually rather enjoyed it. And uh, but looking backwards from there, there was a couple of times. I had a few thoughts of like, man, if I would have known what it was going to take, you know, like if you go back in February and looking forward, we knew it was going to be a, a tall hill to climb for certain. And, you know, there was, a. I wouldn't say Kurt and I ever, I I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak for us both. And <laughs> Kurt, you jump in and tell me if I'm wrong, but, uh, but we definitely discussed like, You know, we're sure we want to do this because, you know, we know these guys, we know the schedule, we know what's technologically possible. And we know that these guys are going to push that envelope right, you know, into the bleeding edge territory. You know, it's like you got to be careful what you wish for, you know, and if you knew then what, you know, what the track was going to become on the one hand, you'd be like, how are we ever going to get there? And on the other hand, it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a great goal, you know? And I really feel very satisfied with the track and very, there's a couple of places where I'm like, man, that really came together. You know, that was, that's pretty sweet right there. So, um, and, and not that's I'm, I'm always very critical of our work. I'm, I'm never, I never feel satisfied, but there was a few spots in there that I thought were came together pretty nice (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: yeah Um, these guys are dangerous people to work with because they know the truth of a lot of stuff (laughs) and there's they know that uh, yes we're supposed to have it all finished by this date but they also know that well you know it's really just sending some files over to China that it, it doesn't take that long it doesn't really take two weeks anymore and so now they'd like to use up one of those weeks, uh, you know, mixing more and, um, and you know, they, they know the, the, they know what the technology can do. And so um, they're, they're kind of pushing the envelope of what can be done sometimes a little bit too far because uh, <laughs> it, it leaves us with no QC time and uh, all that. But, uh, but, but they're, uh, they're fascinating people to work with because uh, they know the technology uh, and, and they know all that stuff as well as being great storytellers. Yeah,
0: but it's unusual. <laughs> like you said, if you knew what you're getting into, would you have taken on the task? And right, you never know. And I think that's why we continue to throw ourselves into projects because, well. We kind of like these unknown adventures. So both you guys, Jeff and Kurt, thank you guys so much for sharing your story about this film. I wasn't surprised because I knew already just looking at the visuals, how articulate they were. And I I was like, there's no way that the sound was gonna be anything but above and beyond what they did visually. I think you guys really achieved something unique and different. And I hope that people can go out and see it in theaters because the experience is so, so immersive. So congratulations and and thank you again for, uh, for chatting about it today. Yeah,
1: oh, well, thanks. Great to do it. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to my chat with the sound team of Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com.